KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. A first-in-the-nation switch. California moves from pandemic to endemic. We're taking the lessons learned, and we're leaning in to the future. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Military personnel help health workers battle COVID in Arizona. As with nursing, you know, we do get, you know, burnt out and we feel that, you know, we're, it's, COVID is trying. It's very, it's a different beast on their own. Art with fossil fuels and more on our weekend preview. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. California has embarked on an effort to live with COVID-19. Governor Gavin Newsom has announced a shift in the state's response to the virus, moving from pandemic to endemic. We move into a phase which should allow you confidence that we are not walking away, that we're taking the lessons learned and we're leaning in to the future. That shift anticipates that the virus will continue to exist in the community, but vigilant public health measures can keep it under control. California is the first state in the nation to declare an endemic policy toward the virus. Joining me is KPBS health reporter, Matt Hoffman. Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. In a practical sense, what does this change to endemic mean for people in their daily lives? Like, will all mask mandates be lifted? Have testing or vaccination requirements changed? Well, in terms of will all mask mandates be lifted, the state's mask mandate for va- or for people who are vaccinated is gone. Now, local jurisdictions can do what they want. So we know up in L.A. County, they are continuing to have uh, a mask mandate. But that's sort of what the governor was talking about in terms of like, communities uh, assessing the situation on the ground and taking appropriate steps. Now, we did hear from the governor, too, that they want to be in lockstep with communities. Um, But in terms of a a change to their daily lives, you know, we've sort of been in this situation the last few months where, you know, aside from the, the mask requirement, there weren't a lot of heavy restrictions, you know, on, on the business side of things. Um, so generally, you know, when the governor says we're moving away from this crisis mindset, um, you know, moving from a more reactive approach to a more set approach. So it's not going to be like you're going to notice a huge change from yesterday to today. The governor used the letters of the word smarter to outline the new policy. Can you take us through what they mean? Bear with me here for a minute because there's a lot of letters here. So smarter, the S is stands for shots. So you know the state says we know that vaccinations are the most powerful weapon uh, in terms of fighting this virus. The M is for masks, uh, talking about how we know that masks can stop the spread of the virus. And in terms of what people can expect in their daily lives, that might be something where they said, hey, if there is a variant that comes out, uh, we may have to reintroduce some mitigation measures like universal masking. Uh, a is awareness um, in terms of you know making sure that they 
know what's coming um, and how COVID-19 is spreading. R is readiness. That's the understanding that when we talk about endemic, you know, COVID isn't going away uh, and the state's recognizing that they want to be more proactive and ready to react. Um, and that includes monitoring things like wastewater, all that kind. Uh, the T in smarter stands for testing. And the state basically says, we're going to continue to provide this testing. E is education. They want schools to stay open for in-person instruction, and they think that they can do that safely. And finally, the R in smarter stands for RX. We're talking about treatments. So like antivirals, monoclonal antibodies, continue to use those as another you know, tool in the tool belt to fight this virus. I want to expand on something that you mentioned when it comes to an example of increased monitoring that goes along with this endemic policy. Newsom said analysis of wastewater will be improved to search for signs of the virus. What happens if a surge or a new variant is detected? Well, it's going to kind of de- depend on what that surge or, or, or what that variant is and if it's staying in one spot or if it's spreading statewide. Uh, we heard the governor's team talk about that they don't want to be too prescriptive in terms of like even when you look at their response to Delta in terms of the response to Omicron, you know, Omicron a lot more contagious, less deadly, Delta more deadly. Uh, so they want to be ready uh, to prepare uh, for different variants in different ways. Um, but if they were to detect something in wastewater like we have here in San Diego, they test wastewater regularly, um, and it can give up to a, a few week uh, notice in terms of what's coming. Uh, if they saw increases, then, you know, we heard Dr. Galley said they would flood that area area with testing uh, to see if they can get a, a track on the virus. They want to work closely with cities and counties, Maureen. So does the new endemic policy take into consideration the special needs of underserved communities, you, you know, those communities who've seen the highest rates of disease and death? Yeah. So something the governor has said throughout the pandemic, and he reiterated yesterday, is that uh, is that equity will guide uh, this plan and this framework. So that's something that we're definitely hearing, um, even when he talks about uh, you know the S and smarter shots uh, that we need to get uh, boosters out there for people. You know, there's kind of been a low uptick for boosters. Uh, we are seeing generally, you know, some of that older population, the more vulnerable, are the ones that are going out there and getting that. Uh, but making sure that even the booster distribution is equitable. So something that's definitely top of mind for the administration. What's been the reaction of San Diego officials to the governor's endemic policy? We had a chance to talk with County Supervisor and Board Chair Nathan Fletcher. He also chairs the county's COVID-19 subcommittee, kind of been you know one of the front men in terms of the county. He says he thinks that we're at a point now where we can safely and responsibly be aware um, and you know recognize that COVID is going to stay here with us, but that that state of crisis, you know, that we don't need to be there anymore. Um, he also touched on restrictions for businesses, which the state hinted at likely won't be super super restrictive like we saw early on. You know, the probabilities of any restrictions moving forward is, is, is highly unlikely because, again, and we now have the tools, they're readily available. Folks can access a vaccine, a booster, our hospitals have better treatments. You know, we have some of the natural immunity that's been built up via infection and the combination of all of that, you know, just puts us in a very different position and situation than we've been in uh, for the last few years. So this endemic plan doesn't seem to actually change that much on a practical level. Did the governor explain why he's chosen to make this announcement now? 
the governor says that California is more prepared than ever uh, to tackle the pandemic. He talked about going back even a couple of years ago, how we didn't know hardly anything about how the virus spread, uh, you know, how deadly it was, uh, what was the likelihood people uh, could go to hospitals or overwhelm the hospital system. Um, and he says that combined with, you know, recently cases have been have been going down um, uh, the, the vaccination wall that we have and not just the vaccination wall, you know, people that have had COVID um, and have some of that immunity. But he says that we're sort of here to meet this moment and, and we're prepared for the future. And he does say, you know, the approach isn't to let the virus just ravage us, but to be ready to act instead of, you know, being in a more reactive framework, a more proactive uh, response to this pandemic. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman, thank you so much. Thanks, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. The Pentagon has deployed about a 1,000 active duty service members to civilian hospitals around the country to help with the latest COVID surge. Reporter Lucy Kopp of the American Homefront Project visited a Yuma, Arizona hospital where active duty Air Force troops are working. Since the beginning of the year, Captain Farron Adams and 14 other military personnel have called Yuma, Arizona their home away from home. We didn't know each other when we first showed up, but we've got to know each other, and you become family really quick. Adams, a clinical nurse, is part of a team of 15 who arrived in the small desert town from Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. They got here just 48 hours after they were tasked with an unusual deployment for active duty military troops, a COVID relief mission. Since then, they've been working side by side with the hospital staff. Remdesivir, have you given Remdesivir? Tech Sergeant Franklin Cordone was also called for the mission. I think we had a few days turnaround uh, to get our stuff ready. It was like any other deployment comes down from the, the chain. My boss gets told by his boss and so on, and then eventually gets to us. While Cordone and Adams didn't expect their next deployments to send them to the American Southwest, they both said the opportunity to serve is why they signed up. And this mission isn't a far stretch from how they spend their days on base. Interestingly enough, for me specifically, I, I work in a uh, ward as well, taking care of COVID patients. And myself and Captain Adams with us, uh, we, we work in the same section at work in Eglin, and we take care of the same type of patients, honestly. So it's not too different for us, honestly. Nearly 600 active duty military personnel have deployed to hospitals across the country since August. Back in October, Deb Aders, the chief nursing officer at Yuma Regional Medical Center, predicted a winter surge and began applying for federal aid. The community has such a high percentage of positive COVID right now. We know within seven to 10 days of that high number, we, we get admissions. To apply, aiders had to prove that the medical center had exhausted all other efforts, like using travel agency nurses, delaying elective surgeries, and maxing out the number of patients she could transfer to other hospitals. So all I've done really when I do it is I follow the process that we have to follow. You have to go through your local health department, which goes through your state department, and basically tell the need in our story. Part of Yuma's unique story, Ader says, is its geographic location and huge influx of seasonal visitors. What we have is the winter visitors who come from Canada or the northern part of the United States because it's nice and warm here. 
We have the migrants now this last time coming across the border. There was a lot of overwhelming migrants coming across the border. We are quite across from California, so as California clamped down on what people can do, they came over to Arizona. Not only is the hospital seeing more COVID patients, but it's also had a lot of employees call in sick. Ader says it's not unusual to have 90 hospital staff out on a single day. That's creating a huge strain on nurses. Jessica Muniz has been a relief nurse in Yuma's COVID unit since the start of the pandemic. As with nursing, you know, we do get, you know, burnt out and we feel that, you know, we're, it's COVID is trying. It's very, it's a different beast on their own. So she was happy to hear that military personnel were being flown in to help her team. You know, we just tell them what we need done. And so it's good relief that we're feeling from that, um, from the military support. Ader says she applied for an extension for federal aid and got it. So for Adams and Cordon, Yuma will be home away from home for a bit longer. I'm Lucy Kopp in Yuma, Arizona. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. In our weekend preview, art that looks at language and the border, art that plays with fossil fuels, a new play set in a Japanese internment camp, and some live-streamed indie music. Joining me with all the details is KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans, and welcome, Julia. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Let's start with oil painting, and this is the fossil fuel kind. <laughs> Tell us about the work of the Mexico City-based conceptual artist Minerva Cuevas. Yeah, this is a new exhibition at the Institute of Contemporary Art San Diego's North Campus. That's uh, formerly Lux Art Institute. And Minerva Cuevas has three connected bodies of work that she's brought to this. And they're all kind of relating to this imagined future where fossil fuels have taken over the natural world. That alone isn't all that hard to imagine, but Cuevas takes it to the extreme and kind of fantastical. One of the works is this huge mural. It has deep oranges and reds, and then the black is oil painted directly on the walls. And in the mural, there's these oil wells and those pump jacks in silhouette. And then also these hints at how animals and nature have been completely taken over. They have adapted to plastics and oil. And in another series, she takes vintage oil cans or, or products that promise how clean oil is and then plants plastic flowers directly in them. And my favorite is these landscape paintings. They're usually of the ocean, and she partially dips them in thick tar, and the tar dries as it's dripping off the painting, kind of mid-ooze. And she'll have an opening reception and an artist talk tonight from 5.30 to 8.30. And this is a residency. So Cuevas has a few set work days where she'll be working on new works in the series. And the public is invited to come and watch. And there are two of those sessions this weekend, Saturday and Sunday from 3 to 5 p.m. 
That's Dark Matter by Minerva Cuevas at ICA North in Encinitas, on view tonight through May 1st. Now to the downtown library. There's a new exhibition opening in their ninth floor gallery space. Tell us about Occupy Third Space 2. Yeah, this is kind of a long-range follow-up to an exhibition from 2014. That one was held at Space for Art. And this is a project from curator Sara Soleimani, and the show will be held in the downtown library's gallery based on the idea of the Tijuana-San Diego border being a distinct space of its own. And this exhibition subtitled Plastica y Palabra and focuses in on that relationship between language and visual art, particularly from the 1980s until the present, grounded in the ways that language can be a tool of colonization. And some of the artists in the show, there's Omar Pimienta, and we've recently seen his mixed media photography and poetry work Those were on view at the former Lux Art Institute space recently. There's Cognate Collective, Marcos Ramirez Are, Melissa Cisneros, and so many more. And the reception Saturday evening will be out on the Dome Terrace on the library's ninth floor. It's outdoors. There's a performance from Sonadero Travesura, who are this instrumental experimental Latin synth duo based in Tijuana. The Occupy Third Space opening reception will be Saturday from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Downtown Library, and the exhibition will be on view through May 2nd. Let's move on to the theater. New Village Arts had to push back on the opening of their production of Desert Rock Garden during the Omicron surge, but they found a new significance in tomorrow's updated opening date, which is the 80th anniversary of Executive Order 9066, the 1942 directive to create the Japanese-American internment camps during World War II. How is this connected? This play, Desert Rock Garden, it's set in 1943 in the Topaz War Relocation Center, which was one of the bigger incarceration camps in central Utah. And incarceration is actually the preferred term for these camps now for many people versus internment, which is increasingly seen as a kind of euphemism or a misleading term. But over the course of the war, Topaz held more than 11,000 people. And one of the themes of this play, Desert Rock Garden, is how this high desert environment was so harsh for the people sent there who were not used to those conditions. The majority of the residents had immigrated to San Francisco, for example. And the script follows two people, an elderly man and a younger girl who forge an unlikely friendship in the unlikeliest of conditions. That's Desert Rock Garden, produced by New Village Arts and performed at the Oceanside Theatre Company stage with the official opening night Saturday at 7.30 p.m. and a matinee on Sunday at 2 p.m. There's also one more low-cost preview performance tonight at 8. And finally, some music. Tell us about Rabbit Light and their live stream set with Radio Axiom. Yeah, Rabbit Light is a cross-border duo and people who are familiar with the visual art scene in San Diego may know Francisco Ame as the Fronts Gallery Director that's in San Isidro. And he's also an experimental instrumental musician. And along with Monica Camacho on vocals, Rabbit Light is an indie art pop band with 
really dreamy electronics and vocals. And they've been releasing a string of singles lately, and another one is supposed to drop in just a few weeks. And they're currently at work on a new album. And they also recently collaborated with visual artist Avia Rose Ram on the art and animation for their latest video. It's for the track In Flames. And we also have that video on our website if you wanted to check it out. Rabbit Light is playing a set with Radio Axiom, which is a project of Javier Vasquez. And each session includes a few performances with a DJ between sets. And in Saturday's show, it'll be John Jolly, Trio Castra, Nathan Hubbard, and Curtis Gladder performing alongside Rabbit Light. Radio Axiom is Saturday at 8 p.m. live streamed on Twitch and on social media. For details on these and more arts events or to sign up for Julia's weekly KPBS Arts newsletter, go to kpbs.org arts. And be sure to check with event organizers for changes or COVID protocols before heading out. I've been speaking with KPBS Arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Have a good weekend. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.